you've been around Cedar Home for the last few months, we've been looking at the last 12 books of the Old Testament, which are called the Minor Prophets. And during our time, we've been talking about two important dates, 722 BC, the year the Assyrians invaded and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel, and 586 BC, the year the Babylonians invaded and exiled the southern kingdom of Judah. And the minor prophets we've already looked at, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, most of those guys have been predicting the coming of God's divine judgments in these invasions and exiles. But now, in the book of Haggai, the book we're gonna be looking at this morning, the prophet Haggai is picking up the story after these divine judgments have already come, and after God's people have already returned to their homelands from exile. So there's a lot of history that's taken place between the book we looked at last time, Zephaniah, and the book we're gonna be looking at today, Haggai. And I think the most helpful place for us to start this morning is way back, way, 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 way back in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapters one and two, it is literally heaven on earth. It's heaven on earth. There is no separation between God's domain and mankind's domain. They completely overlap. They're the same space. And Adam and Eve enjoy life in the presence of God. But then in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve decide that they want to do things their own way, under their own rule, in their own space, and as a result, God's domain and mankind's domain become separated. And interestingly, it's not them who drive God out of their space, it's God who drives them out of his space. They're forced to leave his holy presence in the garden as exiles. And for good measure, God stations cherubim, or cherubim, spiritual creatures, and a flaming sword east of the garden to guard and protect that divine space. But then, in Genesis chapter 12, we see God calling a pagan man named Abram, who's later renamed Abraham, out of his paganism into worship of the one true God. And out of his people group into a new people group that would begin with him. And out of his land, the city of Ur in southern Babylon, into a new land, a land of promise, Canaan. So God is taking the initiative to bring members of this estranged and exiled humanity back to himself. And from one man, from Babylon, God is raising up a people for his own possession. But then, fast forward a bit to the book of Exodus, and we see that the people of Abraham, God's people, aren't settled in Canaan. Where are they? They're slaves in Egypt. But in a great exodus, God brings his people out of Egypt through Moses and then begins to lead them back to the promised land. But instead of journeying straight to Canaan, which should have only taken a few days, God's people wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their faithlessness and rebellion and sin. But early on in their wandering, when they're encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai, God instructs them to build the tabernacle which was basically a big portable tent where God's presence would dwell in a special way among them. And 
God's presence would dwell specifically in the innermost room of the tabernacle called the most holy place, which was a space where God's domain and mankind's domain once again overlapped. The only problem is that this space could only be accessed once a year by one man, the high priest, who went in there to offer a sacrifice before God on behalf of the sins of the people. So obviously the tabernacle was no return to Eden because sin was still separating unholy man from the immediate presence of the holy God and delineating this spiritual separation was the physical separation of the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle by a very thick curtain embroidered with cherubim. And then as we fast forward through the Old Testament, we see God's people finally entering and occupying Canaan in the book of Joshua. And then repeated cycles of rebellion, repentance, and restoration, rebellion, repentance, and restoration over and over again in the book of Judges. And then the appointment and failure of King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. And then the appointment and success of King David in the book of 2 Samuel. And then the construction of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, which was basically a more permanent and more grandiose tabernacle in the book of First Kings, and then the split in the nation of Israel in 931 BC into a northern kingdom, 10 tribes under King Jeroboam called Israel, and a southern kingdom, two tribes under King Rehoboam called Judah. And then most of the prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all those guys, they prophesied to these two kingdoms, warning them of God's coming judgment upon them if they will not repent of their sin and return to God, which is precisely what they do not do, which leads to the events of 722 and 586 BC. And so, a few major motifs that we see develop throughout the Old Testament are the relationship between heaven and earth, which we could just call God's domain and mankind's domain. They once overlapped, but then they were separated. And exile, banishment from the presence of God as a result of and punishment for sin. And the temple, which is a place where heaven meets earth and they overlap again. But now it's a place of sacrifice for sin. Now, what specifically happens between Zephaniah, which we looked at about a month ago, and Haggai, the book we're gonna be looking at today? Well, here's a little timeline. So, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar rises to power in Babylon, and he instigates a mini-invasion and exile of Judah. And then he does the same thing again in 597 BC, and then, there's a really big invasion and exile in 586 BC where he totally destroys Judah and takes a huge number of Judeans back to Babylon. And of course, the worst thing about the exile in 586 BC was not that Judah and Jerusalem and the temple were utterly destroyed and, and not that God's people were taken away from their land. The worst thing was that they were being driven out by God through Babylon away from his presence because of their sin. 
They were being driven out by God, away from his presence. Then in 562 BC, Nebuchadnezzar dies and Babylon begins to fall apart. And then three years later, in 559 BC, King Cyrus II rises to power in Persia. And then 20 years later, in 539 BC, Cyrus takes Babylon. And a year later, he issues a decree that all the exiles in Babylon are allowed to return to their homelands. So, and then Ezra chapter 2 tells us that 42,360 Judeans, plus many servants and singers, return to Judah under the leadership of a guy named Sheshbazar. But then Sheshbazar dies, and he's succeeded by his nephew Zerubbabel. And under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, the people build an altar and make a sacrifice to God on the ruins of the old temple. And they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles where they remember God's provision for them during his, uh, their 40-year wilderness wandering. And they gather wood and other building materials from Tyre and Sidon. And in 536 BC, they lay the foundations of the new temple. But shortly thereafter, the Samaritans who were the offspring of non-exiled Israelites and pagans and who developed a cult of Yahweh worship and pagan worship, they come to the Judeans wanting to help rebuild the temple. The problem is they're not aligned with the covenant community of God at all. They think they are, but they've abandoned the one true God. It would be kind of like if, uh, if a Mormon wanted to come preach at Cedar Home. Uh, no thanks, and the Judeans say the same thing. No thanks, guys. We're not together on this. And then the Samaritans incessantly harass them for 16 long years. And for 16 long years, the Judeans stop working on the temple altogether. But then in 520 BC, a cease and desist decree comes down from the new king of Persia, King Darius I, which basically says, Samaritans, stop harassing the Judeans. Let them rebuild their temple in peace. And now enters Haggai. And in the book of Haggai, we get a little bit more insight into the attitudes and actions of the people during this time, and we learn that they are far from guiltless victims. Let's pray together before we look at the word. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to meet us here in a special way this morning, making your presence known and your word clear and your truth glorious that we might be changed by your grace and that you would be exalted in our hearts above all. Amen. All right, so let's look at the first chunk of the book. I'm calling it A Call to Rebuild, chapter one. A Call to Rebuild, chapter one. Let's read the chapter together. In the second year of Darius the king of Persia, this is 520 BC, in the sixth month 
on the first day of the month, which is actually August 29th, strangely. It's according to the, the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew calendar, not our modern Gregorian calendar. Uh, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the year of Darius the king. So, we see five main characters here. The Lord, Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and the people, or the remnant. And the Lord, through Haggai, is addressing not only the actions of the people who've been busying themselves with their own houses while God's house lies in ruins, but also the attitude of the people who say in verse two, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We'll get to it when we get to it, but now is not the time. I don't know about you, but whenever I say I'll get to it when I get to it, I don't get to it. <laughs> and anything I have that attitude toward is not something I consider to be very important. And for the Judeans, this attitude has led to 16 years of spiritual stagnation. Their babies are now teenagers who've grown up apart from God's temple presence. And their teenagers are now parents who've been raising their own kids apart from God's temple presence. And their parents are now grandparents, some of whom have already died apart from God's temple presence. The Judeans don't even realize that, in a sense, they're still in exile. 
They think they've returned because they're back in the land, but they have yet to return to God. And the temple that lies in ruins is the proof. It's, it's a picture of their spiritual condition. And here's something that's really interesting. We know from the book of Ezra that the Judeans had collected all the wood and other building materials they needed to rebuild the temple. But of course they only got so far as to lay the foundation and then gave up. So they must have had all this wood lying around somewhere, right? Well, if they did, why does God tell them to go up into the hills to gather wood in verse eight? And why does God specifically mention in verse four their paneled houses, presumably wood-paneled houses, which only the upper class could afford? And why have the people been avoiding God's house like the plague for 16 years? I think it's because they used the wood that had been designated for the rebuilding of the temple to build their own houses. And if that's the case, and I think it is, then we're dealing with something much more pernicious than merely misordered priorities. We're dealing with people who are bent on serving themselves and stealing from God to do it. And look, this this isn't just about the wood. It's never just about the wood. It's about the glory. It's about the glory. Look at verse eight. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. They are robbing God of the glory he is due. And twice, God says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. And then says, you sow much but harvest little. And you eat but you never have enough. And you drink but you never have your fill. And you clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And you earn wages only to put them into a bag with holes. And you look for much but behold it comes to little. And you bring things home that I just blow away. And and these are not just metaphors for a kind of existential emptiness or dissatisfaction that attends a life lived apart from God, although the Judeans may be feeling that right now. No, these are quite literal consequences. And verse 10 tells us that they're directly from God who has brought drought and famine upon them and has cursed the work of their hands. And I think he's done it because he loves his people because he loves his people. See, the reality is that the worst thing that God could ever do to his people is to just give them over to their sin, to let them do whatever they want to do, saying, fine, have at it, my hands are off. In love, God is doing what it takes to get their attention, and because his daily blessings have been continually overlooked. He's resorted to curses which aren't so easily ignored. And what happens next is truly remarkable. God's people listen and obey him. And God tells them that he is with them. And God stirs up their spirit to begin work on the temple once again. Let's look at chunk number two. I'm calling it a promise of glory. Chapter two, verses one through nine. A promise of glory. Chapter two, verses one through nine. Let's read it together. 
in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month, which is October 17th, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So here, it's almost kind of humorous. God is saying, who here is old enough to remember how glorious the temple used to be? Man, this is nothing compared to that, am I right? And that sounds pretty discouraging. But then he says, O Zerubbabel, be strong. O Joshua, be strong. And all you people of the land, be strong and work for I am with you. So notice what God isn't saying. He isn't saying, dig deep, guys. Find the warrior within and let's go. Or, you really got it, want it. Come on. Or make Canaan great again. No. No, he wants the people to look outside of themselves to him. He is their strength. Not their willpower, not their emotional desire, not their remembrance of the good old days. Just him. And he appeals to his covenantal love for them and his continual presence among them and his glorious plan that involves them as their motivation and hope. Now take a look at verse seven. God says, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now some translations like the NIV and KJV translate this word treasures as desire. And that's because this Hebrew word chemda, it's a fun one to say, is a word that the biblical authors use to describe a particular thing's delightfulness or preciousness or valuableness. So the text is either referring to literal treasures that the nations will literally bring into the literal temple, filling it with glory, or the text is referring to the temple as the object of the nation's delight and desire, meaning the temple will be glorified by the nations who spiritually treasure it. 
But then if we read the very next verse, verse 8, God is talking about how the silver is his and the gold is his. And so it seems like he is talking about literal treasures. But we know from the book of Ezra that when this second temple was completed, it paled in comparison to the glory and grandeur of the first temple. It was never greater than the former. So either this passage is referring to a third temple still to come, as Judaism suggests, or this passage isn't referring to a literal temple made by human hands, but is referring to what the temple has always represented, God's presence among his people, which was greater than the former when God actually came to us in the one who, as the Apostle John writes, became flesh and dwelt, skenao, among us. The word literally means tabernacled. John 1 says that he became flesh and tabernacled among us. In which case, this passage in Haggai is referring to the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ. Which means that God is using the word silver and gold because in this culture, these two things represent the, the pinnacle and crown of human desire and value. Who wouldn't want silver and gold? We all want silver and gold. And he's doing that to say that a time is coming when the peoples of all nations will have their values shifted. And those who once desired things and wealth, maybe even literal silver and gold, and power and status and whatever, will now desire the presence of God above all else. And it makes total sense because God doesn't need our treasures. What is silver and gold to God? It's all his anyways. The whole earth is his and the fullness thereof. Instead, God wants to be treasured. And God is most glorified in us when we delight in him and desire him above all else. Let's look at the Chunk number three, I'm calling it a promise of blessing. Chapter two, verses 10 through 19. A promise of blessing, chapter two, verses 10 through 19. Let's read it. On the 24th day of the ninth month, which is December 18th, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat, in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these foods, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, yeah, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat and to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you, 
and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So here we have two semi-rhetorical questions. And the first question is, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, do they become holy too? And the answer is no. Just because something that is holy touches something else, that does not by necessity magically make that other thing holy as well, right? It's like putting lipstick on a pig. It doesn't make the pig pretty. And the second question, then the second question is, if someone who is ceremonially unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these foods, does it become unclean? And the answer, according to Levitical law, is yes. And then God says, so is it with this people and with every work of their hands. And I think the point here with these two questions is twofold. Number one, just because the people are rebuilding the holy temple, that does not magically transfer holiness to them and make them holy people. And number two, the people are unclean. An atonement must be made to cleanse them of their sin before God will accept their offerings, which, which can't happen until the temple's rebuilt and the sacrificial system is reinstituted. But, the primary message in this chunk here is that though there have been consequences for sin and though the people are unclean, from this day forward, God will bless his people. And so, what these two questions are doing is helping to make it patently clear that the people's blessing is not of good that they have done, but by his grace that he has given, okay? And the final chunk, chunk number four, I'm calling it a promise of salvation. Chapter two, verses 20 through 23. A promise of salvation, chapter two, verses 20 through 23. Let's read it. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, still December 18th. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, there are three particularly important things here. Number one, God says he is going to overthrow the kings and kingdoms and armies of the nations. And number two, God calls Zerubbabel his servant, which is a title often given to the Messiah in the Old Testament, like Isaiah's suffering servant or Ezekiel's shepherding servant. And number three, God says that he will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring, 
which is the ring that all the kings make people kiss in the movies. It's a symbol of their royal authority, the king's ring. And so it seems like God is saying that he will make Zerubbabel a great king. The only problem is that that never happened. However, we know from Matthew chapter one that through the line of Zerubbabel, a great king did come with all authority in heaven and on earth. And this king became a servant even unto death, giving his life as a ransom for many, laying down his life for his sheep. And so I think God is using Zerubbabel a bit figuratively as he does with David in Jeremiah and Hosea in a way that reestablishes and reconfirms the Davidic line from which Zerubbabel came as the line through which the Messiah will come. This Messiah, this servant king who will be the instrument through which God will overthrow all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. And that's the book of Haggai. And while the book reflects real historical events, it also shows us something about the human condition. Here's what I mean, because for all humanity, the place we were created to be in is in the presence of God. The presence of God, it's what made Eden paradise. It's what made Canaan the holy land. It's what makes heaven heaven, the the presence of God. But because of sin, all humanity has been exiled from God's holy presence. By nature, we're spiritually dead to the things of God. And, And now by nature, we're complicit with and captive to evil, and that evil is within us. And by nature, we never quite feel at home in this world because we're estranged from the presence of God. But in grace and love, after we had been banished, sent away, God himself left his home, his domain, to come into our land, our domain, this world drowning and dying in sin. And he, Jesus Christ, tabernacled among us and made his dwelling here with us And in contrast to Adam, who by his sin and rebellion led humanity into exile, Jesus' righteousness and obedience would lead a new humanity back into the presence of God. And actually, this is the topic that Jesus talked about the most, the reuniting of heaven and earth. He he referred to it as the kingdom of God. And one of the very first ways Jesus hinted at how we'd see this reuniting of heaven and earth beginning to happen was after he flipped over the tables and drove the money changers out of the temple and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course he was talking about his body. And he was saying that the temple the overlapping of heaven and earth was no longer a place, but a person. A person who'd be destroyed, but rise three days later. And this connects us to the words of John the Baptist, who said of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Meaning, Jesus would put an end to the sacrificial system in the mediation of temple priests by a 
perfect and final sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself as the spotless Lamb of God. And when Jesus yielded up his spirit in death, the gospel writers tell us that the curtain in the Jerusalem temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to make an actual complete atonement for sin in, in a way that the blood of bulls and goats could not do, and that Jesus' sacrifice opened up a way of return and access into the presence of God. And then when we get to Pentecost in the book of Acts, we learn that this return wasn't so much about us going to be with God, but about God coming to be with us and in us by the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, believers everywhere became little, living, moving, breathing temples where God's holy presence dwelt within them. And you'd think, you would think that this would be such a wonderful new reality to live in and enjoy that God's people would now chase after the Lord and his kingdom and his righteousness with a reckless abandon to sin and worldly things, and yet we read the Apostle Paul speaking to the carnal Corinthians who were steeped in sexual immorality, saying, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And I think this is where the book of Haggai becomes so relevant to us today because even blood-bought, redeemed exiles in Christ sometimes find themselves back in Babylon, back in the world, after they've been called out of the world, or, or half-heartedly returned. Half-heartedly returned, meaning they surround themselves with all the right people and they spend their time in all the right places and they say all the right things but they've distanced themselves ever so slightly from God that in a sense they're still in exile. They're only half-heartedly returned. It's the Bible watcher who just watches his Bible collecting dust on his nightstand day after day after day because he has little desire to hear from God. Or the prayerless commuter who spends a couple hours in his car going to and from work every day, but he still finds himself too busy to pray because things like podcasts and music and talk radio are more important to him than talking to God. or the unneighborly neighbor who's been living in the neighborhood for an entire year and still hasn't made a single effort to get to know any of his neighbors, let alone find ways to love them and bless them and witness to them because he's so focused on himself and his own family that he doesn't give other people the time of day. Or the intimacy avoider who won't join a community group or even just open up to a brother in Christ, perhaps because he knows that if he does, if he's honest and real, he'll be confronted in his sin 
which he isn't prepared to part with. Or the blessing hoarder who's been richly blessed by God and yet refuses to become a blessing to others because he's greedy and possessive. In every case, it's half-hearted return, a temple in ruins, and a misuse of the wood, a misuse of what God's given us, right? I mean, what a blessing to be living in America in 2019 where we have freedom of religion and the separation of church and state and easy access to a Bible in our language. We only need a smartphone. And what a blessing to have the luxury of silence every day if we commute to work where we can be alone with God and, and, and enter into his presence and pray to him without distraction. And what a blessing to live in these nice neighborhoods full of people and more coming, right? A plentiful harvest. And what a blessing to have so many local churches where we can fellowship with other believers in Christ and grow with them and be sharpened and strengthened and encouraged by them. And what a blessing to have so many blessings, whether it be our resources or time or our money or whatever. What if, what if what it took to get us to read our Bibles was a new federal law banning the Bible, forcing us to understand the preciousness of God's word? What if what it took to get us to pray was an accident on our way to work, forcing us to cry out to God? What if what it took us to become more neighborly neighbors was the foreclosure of our homes, which forced us into a cheap apartment or into a relative's house, forcing us to become a little friendlier with other people in our living space? What if what it took to get us to pursue fellowship and intimacy with other believers was a situation where we found ourselves in desperate need of help, forcing us to open up to each other? What if what it took to get us to become less greedy and possessive was a situation where we found ourselves in desperate need of another's charity and generosity, forcing us to understand helpless need. In every case, I think these disciplinary curses from God would be his grace to us. Oh, they would be his grace to us because the worst thing that God could ever do is to just say, fine, have it your way. My hands are off and to just let us persist in half-hearted return. The worst thing God could ever do is to allow his blood-bought, redeemed exiles in Christ to remain in a kind of exile apart from his presence. And that's why he came to us, and that's why he comes to us still. 
My prayer is that we would waste no time to find out how God might respond to our half-hearted return because we would be a people who are fully returned to and fully invested in and fully desirous of the kingdom of God and his presence among us above all else. Above all else, amen? Amen. So I wanna close with four brief applications for us from Haggai. And the first one is, remember what you have been saved from. Remember what you have been saved from. Egypt, where we were enslaved to sin. The wilderness, where we wandered without direction before God revealed to us the way and the truth and the life in Jesus Christ. And Babylon, where we were without God in the world, in exiles from his presence. Remember what you have been saved from. Number two, remember what you have been saved to. We haven't just been saved from something, we've been saved unto something else. Remember what you have been saved to, a life of freedom from sin. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom Christ has set us free and a life of hope in Jesus. First Peter chapter one verse three says that God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope and an imperishable inheritance kept for us in the greater promised land to come. And a life lived in the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22 says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Remember what you've been saved to Number three, remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. We shouldn't overlook the fact that the book of Haggai begins with a singular call to rebuild where the emphasis is on the people's work but then ends with three promises from God. A promise of glory and a promise of blessing and a promise of salvation where the stronger emphasis is on the Lord's work. And that's so encouraging to me, to know that God is not just sitting back watching the life and times of Dylan McFadden like a sitcom. Hmm, what will he do next? Oh, he's preaching on the book of Haggai this morning. How delightful. We'll see how that goes. No, no, God is intimately involved with every detail of our lives, and he is bringing about his purposes in us and through us and for us. He is at work in greater ways than we are. If he wasn't, he couldn't make all these promises to us. And so remember his promises and remember what his promises show us about the one who's making them, our sovereign God. Remember God's promises. And number four, remember that God's ultimate plan is to invade our world with his presence. You know that's his ultimate plan, don't you? Isaiah talked about it, Peter talked about it, 
John in Revelation talks about it. God's ultimate plan is to invade our world with his presence. God loves his creation so much that he is not going to abandon this rock of garbage and fallenness and depravity. He's not just going to zap us away from this world into his heavenly presence and then wipe out the earth. We just get to be with God in some other place. No, he's returning to restore this broken world and to dwell here with us. Which means that one day, heaven will be earth and earth will be heaven. Complete overlap between God's domain and mankind's domain just as it was in the beginning in the garden. And you know what I say to that? I say, Maranatha, come Lord, come and invade our world and come and invade this heart and heart of mine and may all your blood-bought, redeemed exiles in Christ be fully returned to you by your grace and for your glory alone. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We usually end our time in the word with a closing song in response to God, but instead this morning, I just wanna end with prayer and end with your response being just standing and, and praying before God with me. So let's pray to God. Lord God, I, I am fearful of any ways that we, your people, in this congregation, are presently distancing ourselves from you and, and are misusing your gracious blessings to us to serve ourselves, robbing you of the glory that you are due, not only in this world, but through our church and through each of us individually in this church as your blood-bought, redeemed exiles in your son, Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us of our sinful attitudes of contentment to remain in exile, to live life not fully submitted to you, our King, and not fully returned to your presence each day that you give us life and breath. Lord, I thank you so much that you have come to us and that you still come to us and that you have promised to never leave or forsake us, though you have every right and reason to do so. Oh Lord, you are so gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, engage our hearts with your purposes and give us a renewed desire for your kingdom, which is coming and coming soon. I ask that you would stir up our spirits today, Lord. We need your grace to listen and obey. Amen. Go in the grace of God.